We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark's 14th chapter as we continue to move toward the completion of this study of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 14. And we come to that treacherous kiss. Just the simple title lets anyone who's familiar with the Bible at all know what we are speaking of. Let me read this text for us and then we will dive in and go through it phrase by phrase. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the priests, chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. In my first year of seminary, I was sitting in a class on pastoral ministry, and the teacher said something that would be a watershed for my life and ministry. He was talking about the future troubles and trials that every pastor would face. And he told us we would all see people turn on us and some turn on the Lord and walk away. And the words he gave that day still ring in my ear. Gentlemen, he said, it's wonderful being a shepherd, but remember that the sheep bite. I've certainly had that feeling before. I have felt the sting over the past 40 years of being bitten by people that any leader, spiritual leader, feels. And when someone turns away from them, when someone turns away from their teaching, when someone turns away from the Lord. But can I just tell you, that is not anywhere near the description of what we just read in the people turning away from Jesus. The abandonment that Jesus experiences here in John 14 and the subsequent arrest 
are unparalleled in the history of betrayals. As you know, we've been following Mark's guided tour of the last days of Jesus' life, and now we are inside the last few hours of the Lord Jesus' earthly pilgrimage. Quick review. Earlier this day, on Thursday, he had withdrawn from the public and sent his disciples to prepare for the Passover meal that they would enjoy that evening. They all met together in the upper room where the meal had been prepared. He had an extended dinner with his men where he had the last legitimate Passover and instituted the very first Lord's table or communion. He taught them, he prayed with them, he prayed for them, he prayed with them, he sang with them. He prophesied Judas's treachery. Then he left the upper room, drops down off the Temple Mount complex into the Kidron Valley and goes up just ascending onto the Mount of Olives where there was a grove of olive trees called the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight of his, of his disciples at the entrance to the garden. He takes three others, his inner circle, Peter and James and John, deeper into the garden where he collapses under the trauma of the horror that he is being abandoned by God the Father. He's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. Three times he asks God, to remove the bitter cup he's about to drink. And three times there is no answer. And as we've noted a few times, for the first time in the history of God, which is eternity, in the Trinity there was a breach. When Jesus will say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That forsaking begins in the garden. His agonizing battle and prayer comes to an end. He's sweating blood. And now a straight line is about to be drawn from this early, early Friday morning hour, just a few hours later at 9 or so a.m. when he will be nailed to a Roman crucifix. He's arrested. And as he's arrested, each of the players who are around in that, that context face the ultimate moment of truth? Will they stand with him potentially at their own demise or will they abandon him to protect themselves? They must choose between Jesus and themselves. And there's a lot of actors in this scene, a lot of players in this scene, a lot of responders in this scene. As we look at it, we can break it down very simply by looking at Six responders to the ultimate moment of truth. Six responders to the ultimate moment of truth. As we go through these, I wonder if you can find which of these will I find, can I find the most resonance with? Which can I identify with the most? The first is the one indicated by our title, the hypocritical betrayer, Judas himself. The hypocritical betrayer betrayer. Mark's favorite word, immediately, he's moving quickly, he's urgently marching toward the cross, immediately. Now, when we see immediately, what are we talking about? Immediately after he has finished praying. 
Look back to verse 20, 42. Get up. He goes back to Peter, James, and John. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. The third time they're sleeping. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Little geography that we've talked about before. Jesus is at the bottom of the temple ridge on which Mount Moriah uh, was designated. That's where the temple was built. At the bottom, the Kidron Valley was where a creek uh, flowed in the in the spring. Was a, a grove of trees that were all olive trees that that Jesus would regularly, we'll find out later, uh, go to pray with his men. Then it begins uh, the ascent up the the Mount of Olives. It would have been easy, I've been there, it's easy from that position to look straight up at the ridge on which the temple sits and see the trails that would be tracked down through on that ridge and the the torches in the middle of the night carried by hundreds, as we'll see in a moment, of people. And Jesus says, he wakes the men up and he says, get up, let us be going, guess what, behold, The one who betrays me is here. He is at hand. Immediately while he was still saying that, while he's telling the disciples, those three, get up, they're coming, they come. And then this this little description, five words, Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve. The name Judas is forever a synonym for treachery and betrayal. Listen to how the four gospel writers construct their narratives around Judas. Just a few descriptions. We saw a prediction of this back in Mark chapter 3 verse 19 when Mark, talking about the choosing of the disciples, says... Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Luke 6, 16. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Matthew 26, 14. One of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest to construct this moment that we're finding in Mark 14 and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. John 12, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor Judas, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was in it. That's all amazing, but what I find most amazing as a description of Judas in the Gospels is is the phrase that comes from Jesus himself. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, when he was months, probably more than a year earlier than this moment, up in Galilee, a hundred miles north. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And then John adds, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We find that phrase here again. One of the twelve. I think Mark intends by saying that to highlight the horror of his betrayal. 
He was one of those 12 privileged men who had lived with and ministered alongside the Lord himself. Think about this. Judas had preached alongside Jesus. He had healed the sick. He had cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Jesus had revealed his greatest insights to the 12, and Judas was a part of that. And yet he was from the very beginning a betrayer. There's a posse that's assembled up on the Temple Mount by the high priest because of Judas who knew the Lord would go to this place in this moment of trial. He had been there many times. Jesus knew that Judas knew that he would be there and could have gone elsewhere and he didn't. John informs us of this. John 18, 1 When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden. This is right after the the upper room discourse in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Remember, the eight disciples are left at the gate. This posse would have encountered the eight disciples first. Judas would have looked among them, no Jesus. So he goes deeper in because he knows there are others. Verse 43, and they came up, Judas came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We'll come back to them in just a moment. Verse 44, now he, Judas, who was betraying him, had given them this signal. This is incredible. There was a pre-planned conspiracy that Judas would bring this posse, this deadly cohort, to arrest Jesus, and they would need to know which one is Jesus. There was no electricity during that time. There were no lampposts. This was the dead of night. How would they know which one was Jesus? There were 12 others. Remember, Judas, one of the 12, being 12 plus Jesus, 13. Now there are only 12 outside of Judas. How could they know who was Jesus? He who was betraying him had given them the signal, saying this. This was his conspiracy. He told the, the high priest this. Whomever I point to, no. Tap on the shoulder, no. Talk, uh, uh, talk to privately, elbow, no, no, no. Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize, arrest. The word means violently, violently take hold of him. And then look at this last phrase. Lead him away under guard? Why? You only lead someone away under guard who's a danger. Why would Judas think Jesus is a danger? Was there anyone who understood the power of Jesus more than those 12? Judas' hypocrisy is as stunning as it is wretched. He addresses Jesus. He comes up to him, verse 45, and immediately went up, there's Mark's word again, hurriedly went up to him, (laughs) saying, Rabbi, 
and kissed him. Not Lord, not Kurios, Rabbi, teacher. A title of honor and respect. And then he kisses Jesus. Mark uses a form of this verb kiss that's a, an emphasized expression. It means a prolonged kiss. Not in an inappropriate way, in an honorable way. It's the same word, by the way, used of the prodigal son who is kissed repeatedly by his father upon returning. It's the same word that's used of the Ephesian elders kissing Paul in Acts chapter 20 when they knew they would never see him again. This is a kiss of affection. This kind of affection should have indicated loyalty and friendship and trust. The Lord is betrayed by expression of endearment. Judas inverts the meaning of affection into betrayal. His hypocrisy, again, is stunning. We'll meet Judas again in coming sermons. He turned the Lord over. He ratted him out. He sold him out. He gave the duplicitous crowd exactly what they wanted. And that's who we meet next. The hypocritical betrayer, Judas, the duplicitous crowd next. We find them in verse 43, and then we also see them again in verse 46. Now, back to the crowd in verse 43. Accompanied by a crowd. This is incredible, this description. Just let this sink in. Think of the prince of peace being descended on by the instruments of war. Accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. Who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We have seen these men before in previous days and previous chapters, have we not? He goes on to tell us specifically who's in the crowd, Mark does. Chief priests. These were the ones who were the, the, the religious in charge of the temple. Scribes and elders. These were the theologians and the rulers of the people. These were the pastors. Presbuteros, we still use that term. It refers specifically here, I think, to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body that was on the Temple Mount, the council at Jerusalem. Luke adds that also in that group were officers of the temple guard, those who were on the temple who were the enforcers. They were the bouncers to make sure that no, no one got out of hand. Your text may say a Roman cohort. That's not in the original. Probably not Romans at this point. The Romans will get involved later in the morning in a, in a trial. But this, is, this is probably just the, the police from the temple. John adds in John 18.3, Judas then having received the cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons bringing weapons. 
Judas obviously feared Jesus, but Judas never had seen one reason in the three years with Jesus to suspect that he was a man of violence, and yet he brings weapons to arrest him. By the way, the word cohort there, uh, spera, is a military term that describes one-tenth of a legion. A legion was 6,000 men, making this 600 men. Is that right, Ben? That's one-tenth? Good. Did the math on that. 600 men with swords and clubs and chief priests and scribes and elders and pastors and theologians and policemen all come for one man. It's a small army bearing arms with swords and clubs, intent on carrying out the will of the religious superiors. This was likely Levites who were the temple troops. What a spectacle this would have been. 600 men, hundreds of lanterns rolling down that hill, snaking down the ridge. And you could see them. You could likely hear them just walking. It's only a few hundred yards Verse 46 is very understated. And they laid hands on him and seized him. That's so benign in the English. It's so vanilla and so pedestrian. They laid hands on him and seized him. The word for seized means to, it's not like we serve a current arrest warrant today. It describes violent grabbing and beating and kidnapping. It's an angry, sudden, harsh, vicious grasping of Jesus. Jesus will talk about this in these men and their methods down in verses 48 and 49. The violence of this moment is not lost, however, on a certain impetuous disciple who you can all guess Which brings us thirdly to the impulsive leader. The impulsive leader. Now, I find this interesting as we come to verse 47. We've said all along that Mark's source, likely for his gospel, since he wasn't a a disciple and he was probably too young to be a part of the cohort here, Mark's source was almost certainly Peter. The other gospel writers identify Peter here, and Mark just says, And one of those who stood by. I don't want to read too much into that. I just find it interesting that Peter's not mentioned here. But we know from the other Gospels that this was Peter. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Again, Mark doesn't tell us his name. It's not difficult to guess who it might be, even if you've never read the story before. John leaves no doubt in John 18, 10. He says, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. At one level, don't you have to admire Peter? This is 600 plus people. And he's not going down without a fight. And yet, he doesn't seem to pick a fight with a soldier 
but a slave. He seems willing to take on these men, but he wants to start small (laughs) with a slave. All four Gospels record this event. Each of them provides a lot of different color, a lot of different details. Interestingly, Mark doesn't give us much detail about this event. John, however, gives us details to help us understand the scene. John 18, 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, now we find out something that Mark doesn't tell us. He goes forth, he gets up, he moves forward. He walks toward the men and says to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says to them, The New American Standard says, I am he, and the he is in italics. He says, I am. Is that familiar? That's the translation of Yahweh, the Old Testament name for God himself. He says to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, as they lay there, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Paving the way for their life-saving escapes. Think this through. Hundreds of men standing with clubs and swords. Jesus speaks the great name of God. I am ego a me. And they all are supernaturally leveled at the very sound of that name. They can no longer remain standing. Their knees buckle. Their faces hit the ground. Their hearts must have been pounding with fear and anxiety. What have we gotten ourselves into? How could they possibly subdue a man with this kind of power? And again, not the trained swordsman. Peter takes a whack at Malchus's head. I don't think he was trying to do like cosmetic surgery on his ear. I, I think he was trying to cut his head off. I think he was going after a, a, a fatal slicing of the throat blow. You say, what? anyone ask the question, why, why is Peter carrying? Why does he have a sword? Luke 22 tells us, we're told the disciples had two swords in their company in preparation for self-defense and future ministry. Now, there's a whole lot of implications about that that I'll talk about maybe another time. It was very fortunate for Malchus that, that Peter was not a trained swordsman. He just lost an ear. Peter could remove fish from nets, but Peter was not so skilled at removing heads from bodies. 
And again, I don't think he was trying to take off an ear. I think he was going for a decapitation or a slicing of his throat. Malchus must have shifted his head, saw it coming. He could have had a helmet on where it diverted the the sword to his ear. We don't know. We just know that his right ear was not just cut. It was cut off and on the ground. Imagine how this act could have possibly escalated the tension. I mean, it's a few against a many. And one in a few takes a headshot. I mean, this could have blown up immediately. I think the, the sovereign calm and purpose of the Lord kept it at bay. There's Peter standing with a bloody sword in his hand, Malchus moaning in pain, hand over his ear, blood pouring down his shoulder. And Jesus says in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, 51, put your sword back in your sheath. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father, Matthew says, and at once he will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus then, John tells us, picks up the ear and reattaches it supernaturally and heals it. Ever wonder later why Peter wasn't arrested for assault and battery? Well, it would be really hard in the court of law for Malchus to come and say, he cut my ear off, and the judge would go, I don't don't think so. Your ear is very much attached. The grace of God. I, we don't have any indication of Malchus's future, but can you imagine what must have gone through his mind in the coming days and hours and months and years? I don't know. I have no, no way of knowing. I just wonder if we might see him in heaven. We'll see. Peter stands here as an example for us all of love for Christ, which is wonderful, but misplaced passion as well. Misplaced Christian passion can be dangerous. The impulsive leader responded to the ultimate moment of truth with bravery and foolishness. At the center of this is the main actor, that's the resolute Lord. The resolute Lord, verses 48 and 49. Jesus now addresses the crowd, 600 plus strong. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against the robbers? His voice had thundered on the, on the Beatitude Mount. His voice had thundered on the Mount of Olives. Heareth thunders with those trying to arrest him. He speaks to 600 people and no one has any trouble listening and hearing. Have you really come out against me with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day, he says, verse number 49, I was with you in the temple teaching. And you didn't seize me then. But this, what you're doing, 
takes place in order to fulfill the scriptures. Remember, Jesus is not a helpless victim here. He knows what's going on. He has predicted it down to the minutest detail. He knows what's about to happen. He's headed to the cross, yet he remains in complete control. He's been in the temple teaching all week, morning to night, publicly. He's been overt, public, unafraid. He obviously knew of their hostility, but never tried to run and never tried to hide. And now they come to arrest him as they would a murderer, a robber, a terrorist. Outgunning, outmanning this small little band. But the key point of verses 48 and 49 and looking at the resoluteness of the Lord is in the last phrase of 49... This has taken place to fulfill the scripture. What is that? Jesus instructs the religious leaders that they were being, get this, biblical. You're all being very theologically accurate. You're all being very biblical. Unfortunately, not in the way you hope you would be. It's the ultimate reversal. They were fulfilling their own scripture's interpretation as culprits in rejecting and killing the Messiah. They thought they were doing what was right in arresting this insurrectionist from Nazareth, but they were actually fulfilling the grand plan for Christ to be on the cross. Jesus tells them, you are fulfilling Scripture. But which texts? A lot of debate about this. He doesn't say which one. Probably Zechariah 12, 2. He now has to drink the cup of the wrath of God. Probably all of Isaiah 52 and 53 being crushed by God, being crucified the next day as the the Passover lamb for the sins of those who believe. All the Old Testament prophecies pointed toward this one moment where the lamb of God would be slain. And they were a part of the fulfillment of of that scripture, but not in the way that they wanted to be, not in the way they predicted to be, certainly not in the way that they anticipated they would be. But just push back from the table for a minute and think of the Lord. Resolute. You've already seen his power. Do you not think he could have said, I am again, they fall down and he ran? Do you not think he could have stood behind the 12 men? It's a lot against... Uh, a, a lot of shield against this crowd. No. He exonerates the disciples, gets them off the hook, says they're seeking him and not them, making it a public declaration of who was to be arrested. Goes straight toward them immediately, walks into his captor's hands purposefully. His resolution, his resoluteness will only be amplified in the coming hours and in the coming paragraphs as we continue to study. How did Jesus respond to the moment of truth? With resolute bravery, with absolute purpose, with unflinching faithfulness to the reason for which he came. Then in one verse, in verse 50, we find the cowardly disciples. Not a lot to say here. 
verse 50, and they all left him and fled is such a sweet word. They ran. They left him and ran for their lives. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen back in verse 27. He told them, you will all fall away. Peter had a little bit of an objection to that. Peter, along with them, runs away. Zechariah 13, 7, we looked at it before. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's fulfilled right here. That's a part of the fulfillment of the scriptures as well. That prophecy is fulfilled in living detail, prayerless, inconsistent, and weak. These disciples run for their very lives. Listen, their faith was weak, their courage was thin, their impulse for self-preservation was greater than their inclination to faithfulness. And before we start throwing rocks at them, can you put yourself in their toga for a minute? How would you have done? You versus 600, clubs and swords and torches? They just have grabbed with violence the Lord Jesus. Now they're holding him. Jesus has just said, you seek me, you have me, let them go. Would you have gone too? Be encouraged. It's not the last time we would hear from these men. When you open the pages of the book of Acts, they would all be resolute to the point of their own martyrdom and death. But that's for another time. Now we come in verses 51 and 52 to the shameful deserter. When you read this passage, this is the part that everyone wants to know about. The shameful deserter. And a young man was following him and wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his nakedness, his naked body, and they seized him, same word, they grabbed him with violence, aggressively. But he pulls free, and he pulls free the linen sheet that stays in their hands and escapes naked, or as we say in the South, naked. He runs off. Now, I, I called this point the shameful deserter. I was talking about my outline with my family earlier in the week, and my son Luke said, that shouldn't be the shameful deserter. It should be the new dude. <laughs> I didn't have the heart, even though I just told you. <laughs> Who is this new dude? R.T. France says this, great commentator. The ignominious flight of this anonymous sympathizer serves as a, in the narrative context to underline the complete failure of Jesus' friends to support him when the moment came. Apart from his captors, Jesus leaves Gethsemane alone. This footnote about this guy running off naked seems so frivolous, so trivial, such a footnote. And it's all too easy for us to be distracted from the main point. Instead of being unnecessarily curious about who this is, Mark's point is not who it is, but what he did. This incident is only found in Mark's gospel, by the way. 
And there are so many guesses. I mean, I, I got to tell you, one of the things that I love every week is I, I read sometimes dozens of commentaries on the passage that we're looking at. And I feel like it's a conversation I'm having with these scholars. You know, they're saying, and I'm agreeing or disagreeing or marking the commentary. I, I was shocked at how many guesses there were, or some people were pretty adamant. Some say this is absolutely John. Actually, Ambrose and Chrysostom back in the uh, first century believed that. This is John, no question. My question is, if this is John... He just comes down from the upper room. He's just praying with Jesus. When did he take his clothes off? Some think it's James, the brother of Jesus. I don't know why. Uh, Most assume that it was Mark himself. We don't know who it is. (laughs) The text doesn't tell us. And if that was important, the Holy Spirit through Mark's pen would have informed us. Anything else is unnecessary speculation. But we do find out that he left and abandoned the Lord. This two-verse story occurs right after the account of Jesus' arrest. Abraham Curavilla wisely says, It's one of the least understood narratives in the entire New Testament. Scholars have described this account as strange, bizarre, confusing, enigmatic, and whimsical. Again, Curavilla goes on, Very helpful here. He says, At one time these disciples had left all to follow him, but now in the abandonment of even the shirt off this young man's back, Mark shows that his disciples have left all to get away from Jesus. The writer displays this naked runaway as a symbolic, as symbolic of the total abandonment of Jesus by the band of disciples who fled to escape the consequences of association with them, end quote. I do think it's interesting that Mark highlights the fact that he escaped naked twice. He uses the word naked two times just to show how urgent it was. So we look at these six back up and we see this scene in our sanctified minds. Is there anyone here who cannot identify with momentary failure? Look, we've all stumbled. We've all fallen. We've all in some ways, in some measure, been a denial of our faith. We've disregarded the Lord in our sin been slow in our faithfulness, lapsed in our courage, and been inconsistent in our commitments to Him. In this moment of truth, all His followers left Him. And at the same moment, Jesus leaves everything in this world for those same followers and for us. You know, you push back. What do we take away from this? Just a few things that might help. Can I remind you to look ahead to the book of Acts? There is, a, there is an eternal difference between momentary weakness of faith and determined rejection of Christ. The momentary rejection are these followers. The permanent rejection is Judas, the priests. All of us experience momentary failures and lapses. That's not permanent rejection. 
And just as Jesus will invite Peter back after his three denials at the end of John to say, do you love me? Do you love me? Then be my pastor. Feed my sheep. What a gracious God who sees all of our moments of weakness and still encourages us and gives us grace and invites us home. I also see here our Savior's desire to be with us eternally drove him to be utterly abandoned temporally. He saw the cross, knew what it would cost, but his love for us compelled him to stay faithful. And then I think we should cherish the faithfulness of Jesus, acknowledge the fickleness of our own hearts, and evade the finality of apostasy. You see yourself in this crowd? I do. Let's be those who turn quickly from our momentary lapses of faith. I hope you know the Lord. I hope you, you've given your life to him. He died for the sins of those who believe so that we wouldn't have to suffer the rejection of God in hell. And as he was doing just a few hours from this moment, he, he instituted communion, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate now which he said, do this to remember me. Paul added to that in 1 Corinthians 11, make sure you examine yourselves. Don't celebrate my death for sin while at the same time holding on to it. Doesn't mean that we were perfect. It means that we understand we're not. 